Hey, make sure to check out the pilot episode of my brand new podcast, Honest History. The episode's titled Control Freaks, The Scientific Roots of Progressive Tyranny. It's available right now wherever you get your podcast. Oh, my gosh. Uh, on today's podcast, the amazing Stuina returns. I'm not going to dead name her, um, but she is back, and it is great to have her back, uh, Stuina. Um, yep. We, we also talked... Yeah, we all had a great, uh, you know, had a few days off, uh, drank a bunch of Bud Light. Everything worked out well. Yeah, yeah. And you have, like, you're like a fire hydrant. You can attach a hose to it or not. Yeah, I figure that's good. I mean, because, you know, you, you really don't get any points after you've done the transitioning. You need to constantly be in a state of transition. And that way, I'm yeah. kind of get all the woke you points all the time. Forth. Screw it on, screw yeah. it off. That's good. It's good. <laughs> it's good. Thank you very much. We all we have a great show for you today. Um, we have some reporting from live from France on what's happening over there. Um, do a great history lesson on Abraham Lincoln uh, and a new movie that comes out that you finance, not the movie, the actual operation that the movie is based on. It's uh, a great movie that comes out tomorrow. You need to make sure that you uh, grab your tickets for it and see it. It's really inspirational and uplifting. It's uh, the movie about Operation Underground Railroad. It's called The Sound of Freedom. All of that and more on today's broadcast and podcast. Brought to you by Relief Factor. In pain? Get out of pain. Oh, thanks, genius. Well, it's not that hard. You just try Relief Factor. Uh-huh. And it, it reduces inflammation. Uh-huh. Exactly like ibuprofen. Well, no. Okay. But it reduces inflammation. That's what ibuprofen does. Yeah, but this works four different directions. I don't know why the doctor sounds like that. Would you trust him? Look. Trust me, I've taken it. And it actually has given me my life back. Just try it for three weeks. If it doesn't work in three weeks, it's probably not going to. 70% of the people who try it go on to order more month after month. Go to relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com, or call 1-800-THE-NUMBER-4-RELIEF. 800-THE-NUMBER-4-RELIEF. relieffactor.com. Here's a podcast. I want to uh, I want to quote Teddy Roosevelt before we go to um, to France. Teddy Roosevelt said there is no room in this country for hyphenated Americanism. When I refer to hyphenated Americans, I don't refer to naturalized Americans. Some are the very best Americans uh, I've ever known. And they were naturalized Americans, Americans born abroad. But hyphenated American is not an American at all. The one absolutely certain uh, intricate knot uh, of German Americans, Irish Americans, English Americans, French Americans, Scandinavian Americans, Italian Americans, each preserving its separate nationality, each at heart feeling more sympathy with Europeans uh, of that nationality than with other citizens of the American Republic. There is no such thing as a hyphenated American who is a good American. 
only the only man is uh, uh, who is a good American is the man who decides to become an American and nothing else. I think he's absolutely right. And proof of that is what is happening in France this weekend. Ezra Levant is in France. Now, where are you, Ezra? Hi, Glenn. I'm standing in Marseille, which is one of the largest cities in France. It's on the Mediterranean coast. It's a beautiful city, incredibly picturesque. But there are two Marseilles. There's the beautiful French part of Marseille that you would see in a postcard. But just literally a few blocks away from the tourist center, it is what I think could be fairly called a, a slum. Uh, with many migrants, uh, usually from a Muslim country, particularly Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, but also Iraq, Turkey... And it's very apart. Uh, on those streets, you don't hear any French being spoken. The, the commerce is, uh, is very different. Uh, it's, it's a different industry. And there's a real separation. And I think that the shooting of this 17-year-old uh, North African uh, young man, Nahel is his name, the police uh, sort of it was in a chase. The police stopped him, and they shot him. And it, it was shocking, and I have to say, I, I mean, I, obviously we'll see what the facts are in the end, but I don't know if he needed to be shot. He was a 17-year-old. They knew who he was. He was stopped already. That was the spark. But that spark lit a lot of tinder that has been festering for decades. And there's a real apartness. It's almost apartheid, except for much of it is self-imposed. Here's a quick thing. I went along the cafes. There's a lot of cafes in the tourist spots here, Glenn, with out-of-towners and French people, and there's men and women, and they're dressed, as you might expect, in a tropical place. But you go a few blocks further into the Muslim neighborhoods, they still have cafes, but you'll notice a difference. There's no women at them. It's just men. And the odd woman you do see is wearing an abaya uh, from head to toe. Now, there's a law in France that you cannot cover the face with a veil. They actually banned that. But COVID-19 gave a lot of folks a workaround. So you see Muslim women head to toe and then the COVID mask. I asked a lot of these folks in my broken French, I said, how do you feel being a Muslim in in France? And and the more assimilated ones said, we love it. Um, We love France. Uh, We know there are races here and there, but it's not systemically racist. I I would say, is there racism back in Algeria? They said, yes. So there were some beautiful answers that were very much on point with your quote from Roosevelt. But there were other people who said, French don't respect us, French don't treat us equally. But then I said, in your heart, are you a French person first or an Algerian first? And most of them, without hesitating, said Algerian. In fact, a a man and his young boy came up to me and they wanted to say a lot about Nahel, the 17-year-old kid who was killed. And I listened to them and I said, who are you in your heart? Are you an Algerian or are you a Frenchman? And they were so proud to say Algerian. And I was thinking, how can you be upset that the French don't welcome you fully as an equal Frenchman when you yourself refuse to give up where you were, except for to come here? I said, if France is so racist, I said to some of them, why did you come here? And, and so I think both sides have some reconciling to do because you have a de facto apartheid. But here's the thing, how that's going to end. Demographics. I mean, France has a declining birth rate for the ethnic French, whereas not only through continued mass immigration, but just through birthright, the city of Marseille will go the way the city of Malmo, Sweden has gone. 
Uh, it, it will be beautiful still. It'll still have the gorgeous sun and the port and the yachts and the cafes, but it'll be more like a Moroccan city than a French city. The world is changing, and it's because I think France and maybe America has something to say about this too, is welcoming in people who are not willing to say America is first in my heart. You know, the, the, uh, I agree with Teddy Roosevelt on um, immigrant Americans, naturalized Americans. They're some of the best Americans um, out there, and they're the ones who chose America. The guy I work with uh, who is Scottish, um, he loves Scotland, and he came here, and um, he was thinking about citizenship, and when he went back to Scotland— just uh, recently he said i saw scotland for what it really is because i now have the perspective of living in texas and in america and he said i'm american i am not scottish i'm american that renews all of us you know that 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 kind of guy comes in and he starts businesses and he starts to take advantage of the opportunities and that is the big difference. I want immigrants here that are coming in and they want to be Americans. I don't want an Italian coming in and saying, I want an Italian community and we're going to have our own rules and our own ways here. No, bring your culture with you, but become an American. You know, Charles de Gaulle, the great French leader, whose name literally means Frenchman, uh, he was considered arrogant and he was considered many things, but, and, and he was a, um, you know, France first kind of person. He, you remember France had colonies in North Africa. He was once asked, can a foreigner become a Frenchman? Like in, in his blood, can you become French? Can you join this country even if your bloodline is not French? And he said, yes. He was a chauvinist. He was arrogant. He was France first, but he said, yes. If you inculcate yourself, if you breathe in the history, the culture, you must learn the language, learn the history, learn, learn the art. You can become a great Frenchman. And by the way, Emmanuel Macron, for all of his flaws, says much the same thing. He gave a beautiful speech three years ago, right in the wake of a lot of the Black Lives Matter riots in America. He gave a beautiful speech in France, swearing in some new French citizens where he talked about their rights, but he went heavy on their responsibility. You know those old French mottos, liberté, égalité, fraternité. Emmanuel Macron said you must follow those. You must fight for liberty for everyone. You must permanently struggle for liberty. He told these immigrants, he said you must follow fraternity. You must be fraternal to your new French citizen colleagues. He said you must put the republic first. He said this. Now, I, I do not like Emmanuel Macron at all, but it was bracing to see what he said. Alas, his deeds don't live up to his words, and it is not happening. And I fear for what's, you know, this is one of the most beautiful cities I've ever been in, Glenn. But there is a shadow over it. And there were 1,300 people arrested in riots two nights ago. Average age was 17. And that's the thing. I, I look at the police, and mm. I, I don't believe in affirmative action. But the police feel like they're an alien community. They have no ties to the community. There are, there are very few minorities in the police. 
They don't speak Arabic. They have no, and half the, the time they're just defending themselves or, or the firemen. You know, they torture place. The firemen go in. They attack the fire trucks. The police have to go in to escort the fire trucks out. It's almost like, um, you know, some of these dystopian movies like Blade Runner or something where the police are this foreign, hated, alien, disconnected force. And they're going to lose just from pure demographics. You know, the, well, the bodies in Britain. So Robert... The, the, that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that was the that was the secret of American uh, police in New York. The the Irish guy who had become an American, he was the guy who patrolled his own neighborhood. The Italian exactly. guy, he patrolled his own neighborhood, and so they weren't they weren't a foreign force. The problem with this is is that at least in New York. The New Yorkers cannot afford to live in most of those neighborhoods. Yeah. The police can't. Yeah. So they're, they are a foreign, you know, they're not part of the community anymore. And you can't have people who uh, swear allegiance first to Algeria being the cop for France. Well, that's the thing. Does your oath mean something? Now, by the way, one of the answers I got was, I, I said, are you Algerian first or are you French first? You said, Allah first, and I believe in the Ummah. And you know what? In some ways, that's like a Christian who would say, I put Jesus first. And, and in, I respect that. But as the Bible says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar. So yes, in your heart, your conscience, your morality, if you want to put Allah first, I get it. Because if a, if a Christian said, I put Jesus first, I would respect that. I, w- I wouldn't say you're a bad American. But in matters secular, in matters of civil law and order, in matters of police and learning the language... You have to put Caesar first, or in this case, put the and, Republic first. And isn't that uh, what an Uma uh, means? The opposite of that doesn't an Uma, in um, uh, kind of suggest a um, a caliphate kind of a global, um, yeah, a global yeah. Uh, government of sorts. And you know, yeah, by the way, he later ran up the church and demanded. Yes, that's right. It's very different. So, listen, this is a beautiful city, but terrible things are happening, and it's, it's, spread, it's spreading to Belgium. It's spreading to Switzerland. Why is that? It's an ethnic solidarity, and I think that massive, unabsorbed, unintegrated immigration, in this case from Islam, is going to be a problem no matter what. De Gaulle insisted on absorption, assimilation, integration. He said, yes, you can become French. I asked some of these guys... Could you ever? I said Barack Obama became a black president. Rishi Sunak is a South Asian prime minister of the UK. I said, could you imagine a Muslim president of France? And most of them said no. And and maybe that's a problem too. If you can't imagine yourself having full access to the corridors of business and political and cultural life, I guess right. you do ghettoize yourself. So, that, but it's a two-sided problem, Gwen. I don't know. It's, uh, it's very sad. I, I came here uh, not knowing what to expect, and I leave with a feeling of fatalism that between demographics, open border immigration, and political correctness, all of these trends will get worse over time, not better. And I, I think that there's a whole new level of, of violence we saw this last week. That I, I mean, listen, there's always riots in France. It's a national pastime. But this felt especially uh, ethnic in its character. Well, I will tell you, the uh, Norwegian countries are facing the same. I was just over in... 
I love those French police cars. They sound like toys. Um, but uh, I was just over in uh, England and Scotland and Ireland. Ireland is almost entirely gone because of uh, the rapid integra- um, immigration uh, without assimilation. It, it is the, wor- the, the world and uh, Europe is completely changing and won't be the same in 20 years. Um, thank you so much, Ezra. Have a safe trip back to Canada. We thank you for everything that you guys do. Uh, up in, uh, up thank in you Canada. very much. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, Glenn. Bye-bye. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. And don't forget, rate us on iTunes. Stephen Mansfield is uh, joining us. He is uh, a great, great writer. He has written many books, The Faith of Barack Obama. Um, he was uh, also The Faith of George W. Bush. He's written biographies of Booker T. Washington, George Whitfield, Winston Churchill, Pope Benedict, uh, Abraham Lincoln, and he also wrote the book Killing Jesus. Publishers Weekly describes his book Killing Jesus as masterful. I think it's genius. I haven't even read it, but it's the same name as Bill O'Reilly's book, and I know Stephen's book has got to be better. So it makes me happy. Uh, Stephen Mansfield, welcome to the program. How are you, sir? Good morning, sir. How are you? And don't get me in trouble with Bill now. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I want to talk to you about several people that you have written about, but let's start with seeing that we're, you know, on the, um, the doorstep of 4th of July and Independence Day tomorrow. Uh, let's, let's spend some time with uh, Lincoln because uh, Lincoln is a fascinating guy before he starts running for office he's kind of a dark dude he had a really tough childhood and then he goes kind of off the wagon a bit lincoln was a very unusual character and i think it's why he's one of the most beloved in our history and what people often don't know is that he suffered horrible depression uh, growing up uh, and this was largely due to the deaths that he endured in his life as you as you allude to he lost his mother when he was nine. He lost his sister when he was she was uh, he, when he was nineteen. We famously he lost the first love of his life, uh, Anne Rutledge, uh, when he was in his early twenties. And then, of course, throughout his life, he would lose two sons, and then have to endure all the over seven hundred thousand deaths of the Civil War. So, friends said that he dripped melancholy while he walked. They often had to stand suicide watch. Uh, he missed his first mm-hmm. wedding date because he was considering suicide. So, um, very dark figure, uh, very sad, beset by depression, and uh, uh, and this uh, this affected everything from his faith to his understanding of the Civil War. So, yes, it's, it's, he's a very very complicated character. Now, is it true, Stephen, in your research that um, uh, Lincoln? Really, his father was a horrible guy, an alcoholic and a Christian, and um, and Lincoln rejected Christianity at first uh, when he first kind of goes out on his own because uh, of what he thought a Christian was due to his father, and That's he apparently true. yes, yeah, was not a moral character at first. Lincoln. Well, he was he was a kind of character. Uh, the father was a kind of character that we are we are familiar with from literature and history. Very religious, very sentimentally, emotionally religious, and yet brutal. 
to his son. Um, right. One of the best stories I can tell to describe this is that when Lincoln was president, he once spoke to a room full of ex-slaves and quite literally said that he knew what slavery was because he had been used like a slave. And he was referring to his first 20 years, 21 years of life when he was under his father's dominion. And of course, the people in the room kind of looked askance at each other like, well, Abraham Lincoln was never a slave, but that's how he spoke of it because that's how oppressed he felt himself to be. And yes, you're right. When he left his father's home at the age of 21, he owed his father his labor before then. Um, he went and thoroughly rejected Christianity, uh, read a lot of the rationalistic writers, Paine and others, um, fell in with a lot of religious skeptics in New Salem, and uh, was v- actually carried a Bible around town just to argue with people about it. So, yes, he was the village atheist wow. for a lot of years. And he also was very promiscuous, but freaked out because he thought he was going to get some venereal disease. Is that true? He, Exactly true. He was a uh, fought in a, a war called the Black Hawk War, and he apparently had some time with prostitutes and later, yes, worried that he had problems and maybe even his depression was related to various kinds of venereal diseases. So, yes, very immoral. Uh, he never gave himself much to drink. He tried to drink for a while and really lost control. Uh, but yes, immoral, mm-hmm. atheist, angry. We know the type. And uh, that's what Abraham Lincoln was for a good number of years. And what was the turning point in his life? The turning point probably came gradually as he began to know uh, ministers who were better than the ones he had known in his early life, began to, we all know that he became a state legislator and uh, began to live in Springfield, moving from a town called New Salem. And when he got there, he fell in with 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 Christians um, who were articulate, who were learned, who were well-read. They weren't just the, the teary-eyed, sentimentalists, um, emotionally imbalanced, kind of like his father was. And so he, he, began, he came among, you know, a, a simple way to say it is a better class of Christians. Um, the turning point really came when he met a Presbyterian minister named James Smith. This is a little later in his life now. Um, he was a congressman. His uh, stepfather-in-law had died. And he was taking care of the estate. He, he pulled a book down in his father-in-law's house written by this Presbyterian minister, James Smith, kind of a cross between Billy Graham and Daniel Boone. Uh, but the man could really write. And he made a lawyer's case for Christianity, which, of course, Lincoln, as a lawyer, respected. And that right. really began to turn things. And then, of course, uh, a progression began that carried him all the way through the White House years. So he did say, though, uh, I wasn't a Christian um, when I got married. I think he said I wasn't a Christian when I uh, lost my son, um, but I became a Christian at Gettysburg. Do I have that right? That, that is a quote that is out there. It's hard to verify. Um, there's no question he had a deepening when he stood at, at Gettysburg. Scholars tend to discredit that quote. It's, it's the, sort of the same thing with all famous men who spoke well, like Churchill, others. Did he say it or didn't he? Scholars tend to discredit that. But I don't think there's any question that Lincoln had a profound experience when he looked out on the graves at Gettysburg. And, um, and he, he, he alluded to it often uh, to visitors at the White House. But, but, but the thing that really deepened his faith, the real things that really changed things were the, the deaths of his boys. 
um, imagine that he lost two boys and lost them, by the way, to oh. horrible diseases that lingered a long time. Um, and this just sent Lincoln already a depressive, right, right to the edge of sanity, really. Um, and, and of course, famously, Mrs. Lincoln was known for her on just a loud, uh, extreme bouts of grief. She would fill the house later, the white house with, with howls, the, the servants would describe them like the howls of wounded animals. And so it wasn't just Lincoln's grief that he had to deal with. It was the grief of his, of his wife that would go on for weeks and be terrible. Um, he finally took her to a window one time and pointed at a mental institution in, in D.C. and said, Mother, if you don't get control of yourself, we'll have to put you there. And that got her to tame herself a little bit. But Lincoln, Lincoln dealt with agonizing deaths his whole life. And he said once famously that he was haunted by the sound of water, of rain falling on graves. Well, he had so many graves in his life that he would visit and, of course, had to attend funerals of people he loved. So all of this, uh, though it sounds dark, is what caused him to search. And it was at those moments that James Smith, this, this Presbyterian minister at First Presbyterian in Springfield, stepped into his life and gave a as the scriptures say, a reason for the hope that lies within Christians. I have a rational explanation. And Lincoln bought it. And I think that was those times were the turnings for him. You know, you say that um, you know, the way you describe him while he's in the White House and her, I can't imagine that a president would have been able to remain the president today um, just with the media and everything else. I mean, that's disturbing. It's, I mean, you know, close to insanity. Absolutely. When he lost Willie, um, named for William Wallace, by the way, uh, in, in, as a young boy oh, in the wow. White House, Lincoln would close the, his office and sit in the dark all day, every Thursday. So he would grieve sitting in the dark. Now, imagine that a modern president turns out the lights, closes the West Wing or, 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 or the Oval Office and um, sits in the dark, uh, just, just in a depressive grief all day long. People, of course, would question his sanity. But this is what Lincoln did for quite some time, until finally a fairly famous minister made an appointment with him and said, Sir, what you're doing is not right. Don't you know that if you believe on Jesus Christ, you will go, though your son cannot come to you, you will go to him. And this was a massive turning point in Lincoln's life. And he stopped those Thursday darkness sessions, um, and he began to search the scriptures more thoroughly and buy copies of this minister's sermons. And so, uh, again, Lincoln is on a journey. There's a progression. You don't have one moment of a full turning, but you definitely have a leaving of the atheist years and a deepening, a constant deepening, largely inspired by his recovery from grief and from, from the deaths of those he loved. When he was um, president, um, they say he didn't care about slavery. I don't believe that to be true. Um, and I, uh, it's my understanding that he had a relationship somewhat uh, with uh, John Quincy Adams, who kind of passed the torch to him on anti-slavery. Is that true? It is. It is. They, they did know each other. They did correspond in the early years. And it's, it's folly, of course, to say that he didn't care about slavery. I mean, uh, not only do we know about his famous trip to, to New Orleans, where he said, if I ever get a chance to hit this thing, speaking of slavery, I will. Um, also, when he was a congressman for a very short period of time, only about 12, 14 months, um, he proposed a bill that would have outlawed slavery in D.C., um, he proposed the same kind of bill in uh, Springfield back in back in Illinois. 
Um, so the the idea, and, and by the way, we have some of the most fascinating writings we have from Lincoln are where he's sitting alone at night in his office, and he's sort of wrestling with God, wrestling with his conscience. What does providence want? God can't be a for the same thing and against it at the same time. He would he right. would wrestle with his conscience on on. Uh, you know, scraps of paper. And fortunately, when he died, his secretaries kept those for us and we still have them. But to say he didn't care about slavery is silly. Of course, he he, he deeply cared about it. And it actually was part, just since we're talking about his faith, it was part of the reason that he, uh, you know, was troubled about the state of Christianity. He couldn't believe that Southern clergy would make a case for slavery from Scripture. And since he identified with the slaves deeply because of his own labors, he, 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 was, he was troubled by all of that. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Mr. Tim Ballard, how are you, sir? Hey, Glenn, how are you? I'm great. I, uh, I saw this movie three years ago, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even sure it was locked at the point at that point, but, uh, watched it with Jim Caviezel and, and you, and I, I think like a Prince of Italy or something was there as well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And watched it. And this is a tremendous, tremendous movie called the sound of freedom. Tell the listener about it. So this tells the story of, of the launch of our, our rescue operation, which leads into Operation Underground Railroad, <clears throat> also the Nazarene Fund. Um, but this is the story of when, when we were in, I was in the government and was confronted with this dilemma of uh, if I wanted to stay on the operation and rescue these children, I had to quit my job. <clears throat> and what's so exciting talking to you, Glenn, is that your audience should be reminded that they paid for the, op- the operation that you're seeing depicted in, in the film, the, the whole island operation, the whole wow. island raid that was funded by your community. So I've been so excited to get on the, on the radio to say thank you to you and your community and go watch what you funded. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality. It's so it. tremendous. So, cool. so tremendous. And I think there's going to be, eventually there will be a movie maybe long after we're dead. Um, but there will be a movie about the operation that our audience funded in Afghanistan too. I mean, it's, it's one of the greatest stories ever as is this one. So, um, what are you hoping people walk away with, Tim? Well, I'm hoping that people open their eyes. I'm tired of, you know, this is domestic release only this week. And so many people in the United States say this is a problem far, far away from us. And it's not. Oh, and this no, film shows you the, the first two arrests are right here in the United States. The first one, the first rescues on the border, which is so relevant today because we have how many kids being trafficked into the United States into the highest demand country for child sex in the world. Um, you know, we have our kids being targeted by this crazy ideology of, you know, of sexualizing them and all sorts of things. So I really hope everyone can put the pieces together and realize that kids are in the crosshairs and this is an American problem and it, re- and it requires an American solution. So there are a couple of movies that I really want to see. I, I want to see Till and it came out a long time ago. Um, and I've wanted to see it, but every time I pass it on Netflix, I'm like, I'm not in the mood. You know, you just don't want to be depressed. This is a really uplifting story. This is not, uh, this is something you go to, and yes, it deals with some awful stuff, but you feel great leaving the theater after this. You do, and you know, one reason that is, I remember talking to Jerry Mullen, who's a friend of yours as well, who won the Academy Award for Schindler's List, 
And he said the one regret he had was they made that film 50 years too late because when you left the theater, there's nothing to do. It's kind of depressing. Um, but this film, yeah. The Son of Freedom, is, it's, like, it's like Schindler's List had been made in 1940, right? It's like you can leave and do something, and that's empowering. And so I think that's why you know, the movie begins for a lot of people as they're leaving the theater, and that's what I think causes hope and, and makes people feel good. So when you, when you watch this, Tim, is there any part of you that is worried that this just makes you much more famous and OUR much more famous and the tactics that you use more famous? Because you, you guys go in undercover and catch these guys um, just being absolute dirtbags. And I, honestly, I don't know. And we've, we've had this. We talked about this when we were in Bangkok together. And we were walking down, uh, what's that, Cowboy Street um, yeah. um, in, in Bangkok. And we were talking, and I, I asked you, how do you live in this world and not take it with you when you get out? Because it's awful, the, these people, and you have to kind of pretend to be part of that. <clears throat> yeah, I, this, this film has forced me out of all undercover work definitively, and I've been doing it for 18 years, and it does take its toll. In fact, it's, it's, it's an amazing, crazy process to go undercover and then come out back in. It takes a lot of prayer therapy, um, <clears throat> but I'll say this. Um, the only tactics we've ever revealed in the film or in the documentaries are things that people are doing anyway. We never reveal something that's kind of a telltale sign that would give us away. Um, you know, things that are happening anyway, parties or whatever. Uh, so that allows us to protect our, our tactics while at the same time uh, exp express to the world what, what is happening. Tell a little bit about this movie, this story in particular on, on how you get the bad guys. The, 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 the operation that, as you said, this audience funded. So, <clears throat> so I had been sent down as a government agent in 2012 to Columbia to consult on an operation. And I was, it was very clear. I was to stop at that point, but I didn't. And I, I, I attached myself. I got involved deeper than I was supposed to. And then I was told to come home because there's no U S case here. Of course, I don't care about U S case, Columbia case, uh, human trafficking, child trafficking knows no borders or boundaries, but, um, the law was the law and they said, come home. And I, I said, I, I, I can't, you know, and that's when I, that's when I contacted you and I, and my wife, and I didn't even know you all that well yet. I mean, I've been to your show once. And, and I thought, mm -hmm. can I get a hold of him? Can I, can I convince him to, to, to take the craziest risk? And your attorneys are telling you not to do it. But, but, but this, <laughs> this was a pending operation. You know, and, right. and I don't know. It was crazy that you did it. It was, you, you put yourself out there. And, 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 you know, we all put ourselves out there. And, and you know, and we yeah. went for it. And, and it paid off. And it paid off in this operation um, I don't want to do too much spoiler alert, but it is it's it's it, it, it rescued over a hundred kids in in a span of about two hours, and it's depicted on this big island scene in in the, in the, off the coast of Cartagena. So tell me what it feels like, um, and I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything in this movie. So we'll talk about other operations you've been on. Tell me what it feels like when because you're undercover you're arrested with the bad guys and here are all these women and young girls really young girls and you're down on the floor with your hands behind your back in cuffs and they're looking at you like 
you're a predator and you know you're not and so you never get that you never get that thank you really from them or just even the recognition that you, you i would imagine i would want to say i'm not one of them i'm not one of them i was really trying to help you how does that feel when you're there oh on the gosh. ground with your hands behind your back yeah, it's a it's a punch to the stomach. I've had um, I've had young girls and kids like even cuss at me. I remember one sp spit at me as we were being taken out. Like, got you, you you know. And I'm like, no, no, we we just are here for you, and and that's just part of it because you know if they know who you are, it's it's a security risk for our entire team. But something unique happened on this operation that you know about that I'll go ahead and reveal because I think it's just so cool is. Um, something happened on the island operation where one of the aftercare people on the Columbia side accidentally revealed that we were the good guys. After they took the bad guys, the real bad guys, off on the boats, they left us there, and the and the and the kids started like singing and clapping and saying thank you to us. And then we realized, oh my goodness, they know who we are. And some of my operators were crying because they'd never seen this kind of interaction never get that. between us and the kids. And he said to me, and, and it may sound cheesy, but it's the truth. He said. It, it's not cheesy in the moment and the moment is beautiful and so real. But he, he, he said to me, do you hear that sound? That's the sound of freedom. And when I told that story to the producer, Alejandro Monteverde, the writer and director of sound of freedom, he said, that's the name of the movie. And they nice. actually depict that scene on the Island, actually depict the scene where the operator says to me those, those words and, and it, it plays really well. Um, so it's one of the more beautiful. The, scenes. The writer direct, the writer director of this is, a genius uh, and has done a great job and is very well known um, in South America. Um, he's done a couple of, I think, brilliant movies here. And this is, this is of course, uh, one of them. Jim Caviezel uh, plays you. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind that happening if Jim Caviezel played me, but I'd get like fatty Arbuckle to play me. Uh <laughs> uh but uh he's a good guy and a good friend as uh as well and what did it take to get him involved well when they when they approached me and said you know i didn't think they were going to make this film because the chances were so small in my mind but they said we're doing it and who would you like to play you you don't get to choose but you can you know request and right out of the gate i said i want jim caviso um, the County Monte Cristo is one of my favorite movies, for one. But but I told them, I said, look, I don't trust Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood is the reason that I'm employed. I mean, that's they create the content, that creates the demand, that creates the whole problem. And and I know one thing about Jim Caviezel. He's a phenomenal actor, and he loves Jesus. And, oh, yeah. if, and, and if I didn't love Jesus, I couldn't do what I do. So that's the reason. And, and they said, okay, they were worried because, you know, there's a, at the end of the movie, if you remember, Glenn, it's really cool. They do this kind of transition into real footage. And it shows some real footage from the from the operation. And they said you got to find someone to, that kind of looks like you. He's tall, dark, and handsome, and and you're frankly not. And and so <laughs> I said, well, I don't care. I don't care what I don't care what he looks like. You know, he loves Jesus. And so they went with it. And Jim signed up in like four days. He was he was in. So I will tell you that uh, tall, dark, and handsome does not come to mind when I think of you coming to my house. Immediately following an operation, you'll fly in from someplace around the world and you'll stop in Dallas and you've done it a couple of times where you come to the door and I don't even recognize you. 
and tall, dark, and handsome is definitely the opposite of how you uh, look when you're on an operation. That's right. I look. I come. I come in pretty beat up. So th- thanks for, yeah. for for giving me a warm place to hang out. <laughs> so uh, there is a uh, two million ticket goal. Um, uh, and why is it? Why Why did you set a goal for two million tickets? So before I answer that, I, I want to announce something so cool. They've already sold over one million. I think it's about one point one million tickets. Um, they sold 900,000 just over the weekend. We literally, be, in, in the theaters where we were competing with Indiana Jones this weekend, which was Indiana Jones opening weekend, Sound of Freedom sold more tickets than Indiana Jones. And it's and not we even open. we even have a movie out. It's <laughs> really good news. It's incredible. The, the, the Angel Studios is just going through the roof. I can't believe it. Um, yeah. But there's 2 million children forced into commercial sex. Uh, yearly, and so uh, to to kind of commemorate that and, and connect it to us, to Independence Day, we want two million people in the theaters this week uh, celebrating the Fourth of July, uh, considering what freedom really means, and 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 also representing those two million kids. Believe it or not, this is a really feel-good movie. You will walk out of the movie theater feeling really, really great, uh, especially if you're in this audience, because as Tim said, you paid for the operation that is being depicted in the uh, movie, and it is called Sound of Freedom. You can get your tickets uh, online. Go see it. It opens tomorrow. Sound of Freedom. Tim, thank you. Give my best to Jim, will you? Will do. Thanks, Lynn. Love you.